Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Russell Howerton, a Senior Physician Executive with Atrium Wake Forest Baptist Health. Russ, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've been a follower of yours for many years in your strategic research. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, we're glad to have you. And what I thought we might do is is start with a retrospective question of sorts. Russ, if you were talking to a younger version of yourself back in his medical school days, what would you tell them or advise them, perhaps even warn them, about things that you know now that you didn't know then? Well, the first advice I would give to a young Russ Howerton is that training to be a physician and participating in the care of patients in the healthcare industry over multiple decades will be one of the most singularly professionally gratifying events one could imagine, more than he would have even remotely imagined at that time. In addition to that, I would tell the same thing to a young medical student today that I believe it will be true for them in the decades ahead. But back to the past, I would warn or tell a young Russ Howerton that almost everything he thought he understood about what that career would be like would be either transient and changing or not entirely correct. I came to medical school as the son of a physician who was a solo physician in a rural county through the 50s and 60s. And I had watched and observed that practice of medicine in later years in a slightly bigger town as a solo practitioner and had seen the craft-based individual accountability to professionalism and autonomy model. And I was inculcated in it from the start. And I today still respect enormously what that model brought and those who practiced it. But we did not know what we did not know then. That would have been in the early 80s that I was in medical school. And a bit later in the late 80s, I had the privilege in my surgical residency to be training at Tufts New England Medical Center in Boston in this very strange pediatric surgeon named Lucian Leap was uh, sharing with us or teaching us concepts that were alien to us training in that model. I would love to say that I immediately recognized the power of his ideas and converted to that way of thinking, but of course that's not true. And I can't even say that I really noticed his article in the mid-90s about error in medicine. And it was only the publication of To Err is Human and the safety and quality movement in the late 90s that I came to realize what he had been trying to teach us more than a decade earlier. And I would convey to a young Russ Howerton that the skill of recognizing life's changes and moving with them is more valuable than he would have known at that time. You know, the autonomy model that you refer to combined with just kind of the huge changes in medicine over the course of the last, call it 50 years, I think back to my own childhood. I never saw a pediatrician as a kid. I was actually taken care of by the same elderly at the time, a general practitioner who had delivered my mother. Obviously, today, the world is a quite different place, but that autonomy that you speak about, Russ, is a good segue to a follow-up question that I had. You know, you and I probably 
both shake our heads a bit whenever we read a press release around either a merger or an acquisition in the healthcare industry. And I'm famous for having quoted this uh, this term, the right care in the right place at the right time is a promise that shows up in virtually every press release of every merger and acquisition that I've ever read about. We're going to provide the right care in the right place at the right time. Contrast that promise with the fact that when we look at utilization within health systems, we see three or fourfold variation in the utilization of major imaging or other expensive modalities. And then take a look as a surgeon yourself. One of the things that troubles me about about health systems is they form, but then they continue to accommodate the high-risk surgeries being done in low-volume surgical programs, whether it's the program itself or the individual surgeon. We have these systems forming, and yet they don't consolidate. They don't uh, standardize. They don't really behave like systems. And I wonder whether or not um, we've moved far enough away from the autonomy model to something that's a little bit more reliable. Well, let me take those in two separate threads because I think there are two phenomena going on there in my experience. So the three to fourfold variation in, say, high-end imaging. I'll go back to the professional model of individual accountability, individual autonomy, and a, a model of a hospital or a facility as a hotel somewhat holding out rooms or resources that are deployed at the direction of that autonomous physician actor. We certainly, through the work of um, Lucian Leap and many others, understand there are systems in play in the delivery of healthcare and that pure craft-based autonomy is not an accurate description. We understand that at an intellectual level, um, but that has not permeated through the culture of the practice of medicine for people my age, 64, trained many years ago. Our workforce is filled with people who are inculcated with that culture, and some aspects of that culture are still needed. The concept that health system merger would change a pre-existing set of disparities would imply that inside of a system, there are tools to lead to different behavior by physicians, management of autonomy in some form or fashion. And I would say even before we get to a merger, you pick almost any size system big enough to have enough participants to measure variation. And there was variation within almost any sized system. Scaling that up to the next level without the tools in place to manage that um, doesn't help. I've returned from a business work trip recently and passed by the cockpit of the plane coming in and always marvel that the analogy to airline pilots is, is perhaps overused, but very relevant. We just wouldn't imagine the level of autonomous decision-making on how to use all of those tools, buttons, and charts up there as we sat down in the seat that we think perfectly normal in the provision of healthcare. Mm -hmm. Our internal tools to manage that are still based on that autonomous model. We lay out plans for how we compensate individuals that hope to incent behaviors we would like. We put um, friction functions in, say, the EMR and ordering them. 
But we don't have a management structure, either those leading or those being led, that would have some different process of reducing that variability. And that's true within almost any meaningfully sized hospital or health system. And simply getting bigger doesn't make that go away. I believe that that can get better, but the act of merging isn't what makes that better. No, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, just mathematically, getting bigger has a bias toward increasing the variability, not decreasing it. As you bring more right. data points in and, and more observations, you would expect pure statistics would suggest that you're going to have some outliers, right? You're going to have some numbers that are kind of off the charts. What I was thinking as I was listening to you is that as an industry, we have tools and communication and data gathering capabilities today that we didn't have when you and I were coming out of college. When I was an undergraduate, I remember computers being these big room-sized things that the computer science majors would be carrying around stacks of cards that they had punched to run through a computer the size of a building. Today, we have the technology and the capability of gathering and comparing information in a fashion that we didn't have when you and I were younger. And yet, the culture seems to still be back when you and I were younger. We haven't come around to embracing the idea that comparing ourselves to some benchmark or standard is way easier to do today than it was when we were undergraduates. I would like to say I'm not totally pessimistic about our culture. Having spent many years as our chief medical officer, we have, in fact, a receptive audience and are able to influence and help people find different paths with data and various performance improvement strategies. So when I was early in a CMO career, every piece of data that was anything other than flattering to an individual physician was incorrect data. I mean, something about the data was wrong. We don't really have that, in my experience, anymore here. Almost everyone participating today understands that it is possible to measure something and to create compares. Now, that's not quite the same thing as saying, I instantly agree with what you, the chief medical officer, are telling me and will change my behavior today. But at least as a receptive conversation, we're in a totally different place than we were in the 90s or early 2000s. But we still grapple with an acceptance of a level of belief in craft-based autonomy that we would find challenging in the air traffic system today. I do believe, to your point, tools of bringing knowledge to what I will call knowledge workers. Physicians are you know, clearly highly skilled knowledge workers who respond to their own professional motivations and the environment around them. The same tools that can get you to buy things on the web can definitely help us influence behavior in healthcare. And I'm probably more optimistic that we will reduce variation in the use of imaging than that we would attack what I would call rationalizing services, moving low-volume services from one place to another on the basis of mergers. So let me take that one that you mentioned as well. The first thing I would say is, as a surgeon immersed in this debate, there can be some debate that a highly skilled, low-volume surgeon will be better than a lowly skilled, high-volume surgeon. There's probably little debate that 
an institution doing a hundred of something has systems and processes in place better able to respond to the patient than a system doing 10 of something. And so that second case easily defends why you might coalesce services without impugning a low-volume surgeon. But a low-volume environment is a hard thing to do complex surgery in. But the concept that coming together as a larger organization makes that easy, I think misses some of the realities of large organizations. So financing and provision of the infrastructure to deliver healthcare is an incredibly complex apparatus that I think few of us, even immersed in it, fully understand how all of the dollars come in the door to pay everything that needs to be paid to get every kind of service we deliver is a very complex apparatus. And anyone who has children may remember a Jenga puzzle where you stack up these blocks and the game is to pull one block out at a time and the loser is the person who pulls the block out where it collapses. And almost no one really knows which block will be the, the, the block that has the Jenga tower collapse. Most of the things we talk about centralizing are relatively high margin foundational things that contribute to that stack of blocks. And the culture we mentioned earlier of autonomy combined with an inability to understand, is this thing going to keep standing up if we move this, create an inertia that we haven't yet overcome. Major medical centers, I think Pete Drucker said, are some of the most complex managerial items on earth. And one has to be careful when one attempts to change them. I wonder if we could pivot a little bit here and talk about some of the economic challenges that face healthcare. In particular, uh, we're at a time right now where the country rightfully bristles at the idea of health disparities. We're very uncomfortable with the idea that access to healthcare is not universally available to everyone who needs it. And at the same time, we tend to rely on the market to govern the distribution of healthcare and to establish its prices. And I wonder how you feel about it, because to me, the idea of relying on the market is a, a difficult thing because markets actually create disparities between buyers. They don't solve for them. By their very nature, they create a difference in the ability to afford something. Do you think that it may be time for us to change the way we think about delivering healthcare? I need to give a disclaimer here that I um, have come to believe, and I'm in complete agreement with the concept that the market-based pricing of healthcare, uh, in addition to the payment model on a fee-for-service basis, are broken going forward. So I can probably give that disclaimer. I agree. I think that we have wonderful people working in healthcare at all levels and aspects within the structure and incentives in place. But to your point, the output or effect on our society and citizens is not something that we would desire or be in aggregate proud of. You know, I don't think any of us have heartburn that a market determines how we have a mode of transportation. There are people who can afford private vehicles. There are some who can't. 
There are systems of public transportation of greater and lesser efficiency. There are private vehicles, some more expensive and some less, and there are market ways that those are allocated. I don't think our society really wants to see market failure in healthcare. And when I say market failure, I think when people think about the micro-level event at the face of care, I don't think we mean, I want you to come with appendicitis and not have market power or resources, and therefore you can't get this service and you must just live with the natural history of appendicitis. I don't think that's what people mean. But when you move a little bit away from the micro level and people talk about market pricing and payment models, you create this situation where the deliverers of healthcare function to those rules. If you think that we need to categorize people into different ways in their market power to access healthcare, somewhere down the line is the implication that someone will have low market power or low resources. If you don't believe that we should simply not treat them, we're going to end up absorbing that fact somewhere. That person is going to come and access our healthcare system. We're going to provide that care, and we still have to pay the power company and the janitorial services, et cetera, and we will pass it back into prices somewhere else and distort them. So what we've created this cognitive dissonance in that we are putting forward a market-based system, but we're not really willing to let the consequences of that come forth. Now, I'm a little disheartened when I look at another situation. We generally let the market determine one's ability to be housed, to live somewhere out of the rain and the cold. But as a society, we, we do appear to tolerate a fairly significant level of market failure there. And that causes me some worry about healthcare. Building on that thought, what you describe, kind of the societal discomfort with lack of access, I completely agree with you. I don't think there's probably anybody, certainly nobody in the healthcare delivery business. And for that matter, I would say a negligible portion of the population in general truly would believe that someone in need of health care shouldn't get it. I think as a society, we're solidly behind the idea that health care really should be available to anyone who's sick and anyone who needs it. The difficulty, I think, is that we haven't, as a group, as a society, we haven't stopped and asked ourselves that hard question of what happens in a market, ultimately, what happens in a market when the price for something is driven up to the point where some of us can't afford it. And what I like to draw a comparison to are things like clean water or electricity. As a society, we would not want someone to not have access to clean water by virtue of an inability to pay for it. And that's in part altruistic. I mean, you wouldn't want folks to suffer. Mm -hmm. It's in part not even altruistic because you don't want cholera in the neighborhood next to you. <laughs> no. For a lot of reasons, we want everybody to have clean water. And the way that we deliver those kinds of goods and services is different than the way that we deliver and pay for healthcare. In classical economics, there's a distinction between what's called a private good. You talked about automobiles and transportation. 
But private goods are things that the market works just fine for because we don't mind if there's disparity in consumption. We don't mind if some folks have more or none. Everybody doesn't need a Lamborghini in our world, right? Right. But the water and the electricity and the things that are necessary for everybody, those are things that an economist refers to as a common good. And those we tend not to have the market dictate the price. We tend to regulate the price. We tend to make sure that somebody other than the controller of the resource sets the price for that so that it's affordable and it's available. Let me pivot in my last question for you and take you to a future, maybe not all that far down the road. We find ourselves in a situation where, let's say, a federal health plan, not Medicare for all, but just a federal health plan as an option to private insurance shows up and it competes with Blue Cross Blue Shield or United Healthcare and it provides coverage for anybody that doesn't have it in the private sector and as a result of that the insurance companies say well we can't be negotiating prices with Russ Howerton while you the government pay something a fraction of that so we need to have fairness and the fairness results in what we call all payer price parity All the insurers pay the providers, whichever provider they're talking to. Everybody pays them the same price. If you were now payer agnostic, meaning you didn't have to worry whether a patient was insured by a government program or by a private program, the the same amount of revenue came to your organization as a provider, what would you do differently? What do you think some of the biggest differences are in the way that healthcare organizations looked at the market or looked at the world if we were in that kind of all-payer price parity future? Well, this was amongst the most provocative questions that I thought about in advance. And a couple of questions came to my mind. The first observation would be, I cannot imagine any price parity point. I mean, there are many set points for price parity. We could choose the highest price we get today or the lowest. I think the likelihood we'll choose the highest is exceedingly low. I think, of course, that it would be much closer to the governmental price today. And so even with a a run-in or a bleed-in period, price parity would immediately look to most organizations as a burning platform to need to have a different cost structure. I, I don't think any of us could imagine supporting the cost structure that we have today if price parity was anywhere near some adjustment to a government price. It would free us from the concept of, quote, segregating patients by their payer status. I I happen to think that my grandchildren will look back on the era when a characteristic of patients as they encountered the healthcare system was their payer status, and they'll have a slightly horrified view of that. I, I don't think we'll feel good about that. So it would be a wonderful thing not to do that. I would have a short-run worry if the payment structure still had the same relative ratios from, say, procedural things to cognitive things, that organizations would have a short-run reaction to need to do the things that even in a payer parity world would be perceived to have contribution to margin greater than those that are not. And I would have some worry about the mission-based activities that are supported today by those um, various um, commercial payer classes. In that way, 
payer parity would be a little bit different than global budgeting or something else. You know, the payer parity would put pressure on the current relative pricing model, I guess I would say. I don't think that would survive indefinitely in society because many of the services that we value and need would be harder to support without this world. I'll go back to my Jenga puzzle analogy. That's why it's so hard to pull one piece out. I do wonder what payers and providers would negotiate about. So it wouldn't be about price, right? And we would need patient to serve patients. A payer would, of course, be looking at medical spend, total medical loss ratio, the value-based care initiatives. From their perspective, if it wasn't about rate, it would be about entities that could provide um, maximum value transmitted back to the funder, employer, whatever. And so perhaps we would increase our investment in the capabilities that improve value-based care because we would be saying to the various payers, all of whom would be coming with the same rates, we are the best ones to serve your patients. We can deliver an experience that your employer, payer, et cetera, will find favorable. Fewer days out of work, less unnecessary spend, maybe not high-end imaging, even though the price is at parity. If we're doing it four times as much as the organization down the street, you're not going to favor us, right? So there would be a lot of incentive to improve the value of care if we could get over the short-run impact of how do we stay alive at some set point different than we are today. Well, when I'm running for office, I will take to heart your concern over the procedural and cognitive ratios of where the revenue comes from. I tend to think if I were immediately elected czar of healthcare that I would convert to global budgets. I'd give Wake Forest roughly the money that they've had in the past, but I wouldn't give it to them the way that they've had to earn it in the past. And I'd encourage you guys to be more innovative in the way that you used it, um, not even limiting it to how you weight surgery versus medicine, but in terms of things like mental health right, and some of the comorbidities that make chronic illness harder to take care of, to some of the socioeconomic contributors to decompensation among folks with chronic disease. You have one arm tied behind your back today because you can't be creative and innovative in the way that you do things uh, because you're a bit like a hamster on a wheel. You're chasing the revenue in this kind of archaic way that we've doled it out. I'm actually going to vote for you for czar because uh, <laughs> here at uh, Atrium Wake Forest Baptist, we made a commitment some years ago that we wanted to be a leader in our region in a conversion to a value-based care model. Now, we're in North Carolina. We're not in Southern California. I mean, there are places with more capitated um, risk-based payment models than us. But in our region, we set about to be a leader. And we have succeeded significantly. We have many skill sets in delivering value-based care, reducing medical loss ratio, preserving quality, and actually receive meaningful amounts of revenue in that way. But to your point of one arm tied behind our back, even with those skill sets, we cannot keep the lights on without intense focus on the volume-based model. Right. I mean, we j it just hasn't flipped in that way. So if I read about your ascension to czar and knew that that was coming, I would feel good that we have muscle memory and infrastructure to respond to that. 
But if we respond prior to your election as czar, we'd be very worried that we'll be pulling the block out of the Jenga puzzle that has the whole thing collapsing down. And we are responsible, you know, like all health systems to many stakeholders. We employ many, many thousands of people who build lives and careers working for us in our communities. And we are responsible for them as well. Yep, 100%. You know, one of the things that I'm encouraged listening to you is you're doing something that I've long encouraged organizations to try to think of ways to do, and that's to behave as if the world was a smarter place financially. It doesn't mean throw everything out and and hurt yourself, but to the extent that you can, don't wait for the financial system to give you an incentive to behave better. If you know a better way to do it, try and do it and and see if we can't get the financial system uh, to catch up. You know, one of the things that I always try to do, Russ, before we close is to ask kind of a, a different sort of a question out of left field a little bit to give listeners a chance to get to know our guest as a person. And in preparation for today's session, you and I exchanged notes a few times. So I'm aware now that during your surgical training, uh, it included a couple of international stops, which I thought were very interesting. But even more to the point, I know that your dad influenced the way you look at medicine. Can you take a minute before we close and, and share how those experiences, both your international training and your dad, uh, helped to shape the way that you look at healthcare today? Sure. As we mentioned, I don't think I have any of the talents or skills that some of your earlier interviews had. And um, if I were to claim that I could sing, my wife would divorce me when I got home tonight. But uh, <laughs> um, I have had the opportunity to see healthcare in many different forms. I mentioned my father was in a small community. He was the epitome of the model of a previous century, put himself through college, medical school, intensely committed to the concept of physician professionalism and accountability. He was actually an early hospital administrator. He ran a one-doctor hospital, which was about the size of a house made slightly larger. Um, he taught me about the commitment that it is to serve patients and give health care and that model. And I respect that model enormously. I, of course, have had opportunity to experience what I'll call usual healthcare system in America, but my training included working for a year for the Veterans Administration as a faculty member. I trained for a year working for the National Health Service. I trained for a year working in a tribal hospital in Africa. I watched the delivery of care in many models that were not fee-for-service payment, and I saw pros and cons. I mean, the level of resources is, is inarguable. There, there are differences in the resources available. But I also watched excellent care being delivered in sets of resources very different from what I see in our environment. I watched the experience of patients and families entering into and leaving the healthcare system and the absence of a feature we just take for granted. The billing collections revenue aspect of healthcare that we see in America is just not a feature of many other systems. And it is striking to encounter care that um, doesn't involve that. I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to experience those so I was able to think about our system in some different ways. I personally hope that 
we find our way to where our citizens and patients somehow remove themselves from what we think of as the revenue cycle, billing, and collections aspect of healthcare today. You and I both share that hope for the future. I really appreciate the fact that over the last couple of years, you and I have become pen pals of a sort. Uh, you know, whenever one of us sees something about the industry that gives us pause, we tend to drop each other a note. And I, I have to thank you because it, it's very reassuring for me to know that someone whose values I greatly respect share some of those views. And listening to you today conjures in my mind a memory of that doctor that delivered my mom and took care of me while I wasn't seeing pediatricians. It's an image of medicine with a weathered leather bag. It's, it's a time in our history that is hard to th- pull forward, but I share your ambition that we get out of the cycle of seeing patients as billing opportunities. Well, I'm going to mark the problem down as solved because that physician delivered you. I need to know when you're going to become czar, and um, we'll go ahead and make our plans to change once you are elected (laughs) czar. (laughs) Well, you're very kind, and I I hope you've had as much fun today as, as I have. Russ, thanks a million for being with us, and I'll look forward to seeing you around the corner. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>